You're listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast, where we believe that every teacher deserves a coach, and every coach does too. I'm Chrissy Beltran, an instructional coach, resource creator, and coffee enthusiast. And I'm your host. Stay tuned for practical tips and honest coaching talk that will help you coach with confidence. coaches and welcome to episode 77 of Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast. I am Chrissy Beltran, your host, and today I am joined uh, with Diana Vera of Biliteracy Now. I am really thankful to Diana for joining me today because this is a topic I've wanted to talk about for a while now. Coaching dual language classrooms is a, a challenge that we really have to make sure that we are well prepared for. And so many instructional coaches were not teachers in dual language classrooms, but actually end up supporting dual language teachers and students. So because of that, I feel like this is kind of an ongoing you know, thing we need to learn about. And really our understanding of language is always growing and developing and best practices and what that looks like. So Diana is gonna join us today, help us talk a little bit about bilingual models, what bilingual programs should have as their goals, um, what our mindset should be as we work with bilingual teachers or dual language teachers, and really just kind of what we need to know in order to be effective dual language coaches. So I'm super thankful Diana's here. I think she's gonna shed some light on, a, on a, uh, an area that has been difficult for a lot of coaches, and I'm glad that you're joining me. All right, Diana, I want to welcome you to the podcast today. Thank you so much for being here and speaking with us. Yes, of course. I'm excited to be here. I'm so glad that you're joining us. And I want to start out by having you introduce yourself to everyone who's listening and just kind of share if you want whatever you'd like to share about who you are, about how you ended up doing the work that you're doing and what kind of work you're focusing on right now. Okay, perfect. Uh, my name is um, Diana Vera. I'm the owner of Biliteracy Now. I've been a bilingual teacher for the past 10 years. I've taught all bilingual grades, first, second, third, and fourth, and two weeks in fifth grade. <laughs> I'm currently a bilingual instructional coach, and I work primarily with the upper grades, so grades three, four, and five, but I also serve as teachers um, in K through second. And I work exclusively with reading and writing teachers. So could you describe the bilingual model that you follow at your school, um, or, or if you prefer the one that you think is best, whether those are the same or not, sometimes it's right. not always in our control, um, and how this compares to other bilingual models? Because I think that one thing that we don't always realize is that there are different, there's late exit, there's early exit, there's all different kinds of things that schools do, and sometimes they don't actually have a model. <laughs> so, yes, yes. So, so what does what is your what do you think that your model should be or what does it look like whatever which whatever question you'd like to answer <laughs> I'll probably just go ahead and answer both <laughs> but okay <laughs> my district is um is pretty large and I, I know that they recently started I think they they're they're piloting the program with a um, dual language I think with like four or five different schools so hopefully I think the big picture will be that in a couple of years the entire district will be dual language like mm -hmm. under a dual language model but Currently, um, we work under a early exit transitional bilingual model. Okay. And so basically that just means that we focus a lot on Spanish in the early grades like kinder, and then by fifth grade, it's basically English. So for example, like they'll start off in kinder, like maybe, you know, like all Spanish and then first grade, it's like 80%, 20% in English. Mm -hmm. And then in second, it's like 60, 40, third mm -hmm. grade, it's like 50, 50 you know, like that. And so eventually like the goal would be for them to learn everything um, in English 
and there's really no like maintenance of the Spanish language. Okay. So it's not the most ideal model out there, mm -hmm. obviously, um, because I'm a firm believer in um, maintaining that first language. Um, so it's not, you know, like the best model, but that's basically kind of how it goes. Now it could, like, it could vary from classroom to classroom because I've been in the, like in a fifth grade classroom where it's like all day in English. And then I walk across the hall and that classroom has all day in Spanish and they're both oh. bilingual classrooms, right? So oh. it really comes down to what the students need, mm -hmm. I think is like, you know, like the main thing, but, but yeah, that's currently our model now. And my, my, my um, hope is that we'll move towards a dual language model. Okay. Yes. We, um, in, in my area, we have very different models in different districts. And, mm -hmm. um, yet, you know, I, I mentioned, I live in El Paso, Texas. So over 80%, I think over, well, over 80% of people here are of Hispanic background. That's a huge umbrella, but, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but the many are, are Central American, um, or Mexican American mostly. And then uh -huh there is a large percentage. I'm not sure what the percentage is. I'm going to, I'm guaranteeing it's over 50% who are bilingual um, uh -huh. in English and Spanish specifically. So we have a variety of models in our schools. Some schools say they have dual language or bilingual programs, but they're not, you know, right. <laughs> it's more right. of an immersion uh, program. And then some have the district that I worked at was very similar to your model. They had moved from, they had late exit models where kids were, you know, mm -hmm. Spanish. There was the more of the day was spent um, on Spanish in the upper grades and they moved away from that to early exits. Um, really, honestly, a lot of it is due to state testing. And so kids are held accountable. They get a certain number of exemptions from English. They can test in Spanish for, I think, uh, three, three exemptions, which is like three years. But mm -hmm. once they don't, after that, then they're thrown into English regardless of their level right. of acquisition. So uh -huh. that's been, that was a real challenge for us. And other challenges included things like deciding for our students in the special ed program specifically, what was the language of instruction going to be in different subjects? If they have a strength mm -hmm. in one, does that mean we focus on developing English there because they already have the foundation or do yeah. we, you know, build up the Spanish because there's, I mean, what do we do? And that's those constant, it's, there's so many decisions. <laughs> that's yeah. what I call, it's exhausting sometimes because you don't always know. There's no like, okay, this is the way to do it every time with every child, like you said, um, right. because people and language are so varied so that was yeah, a challenge. exactly and then we mm -hmm. do have some schools with dual language like like a true like a two-way dual language model which is yeah. beautiful um where you have students from uh you know dominantly spanish-speaking background and students from dominantly english-speaking background mm -hmm. working together in the classroom and then you're developing those two languages equally which is i think amazing and what i would love for my own child if i can get her right <laughs> right i know they're very competitive to get into they can be um, they're hard to get into but I know because I studied um, for my PhD in Austin and I I was um, I actually had to go and observe several classrooms in Austin ISD and I want to say and I'm not 100% sure but I want to say all of Austin ISD is dual language and, it, and I believe it's two-way or at least a couple I know a lot of schools were and I don't know if it was like every school but I know the majority were dual language and several of them were two-way so I got to see Mm -hmm. that that beautifulness of like a student who whose like first language was English you mm -hmm. know and then they were learning Spanish in the same classroom with the student who was like first language of Spanish and they were learning English and it was just wonderful to watch I thought this is a great way to teach students about the importance of not just one language but both of them yes 
Yeah, exactly. It's, 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 it is really incredible to see that. I have several friends who teach in two-way dual classroom, dual language classrooms. And it just, I just love the, and they, even those work differently, right? Some of them mm -hmm. do the same exact content yeah. Monday, and then they do it in a different language on yeah. Tuesday, but it's the same stuff. And some of them don't do right. that. So it's really, some of them do certain subjects in one language and certain subjects in another. And it's very interesting um, to see how that actually pans out because so many of the decisions are being made by people who may or may not know best practice. And sometimes we disagree on best practice. <laughs> so yes. a lot of times yeah. actually <laughs> with bilingual. Yeah, it's, it, we absolutely do. And sometimes what we think is best practice for 10 years, turns mm -hmm. out it's not best practice mm -hmm. or, it, it, or it's never been best yes. practice. And then you're like, oh no, I have to rethink my entire identity because what have I been teaching? You know, because that's yes. what we learn with like, you know, like new research. It's like what I learned in college is not really applicable now. Mm hmm. Yeah, very true. That's and the first first thing that comes to mind when you say that is code switching and how there are completely yeah. different camps of belief around code switching. Um, and some people say, you know, that, like, I mean, everybody has a justification for whether they think it's a good thing to do or not mm -hmm. a good thing to do, mm -hmm. whether it's good for the teacher to do or not good for the teacher to do or good for the children and not good for the children. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's a very that in itself is is widely varied in terms of the way people respond to code switching and code switching in case anybody doesn't know is when you're going back and forth between two different languages like in the same mm -hmm. context in the same conversation or same right. lesson mm -hmm. so you kind of mentioned this the goal of a good mm -hmm. bilingual program but can you kind of just nail it down for us what do you believe the goal of a really good bilingual program should be sure sure um so i think the goal really is for the student to be bilingual um, and bicultural, right? And I can only speak from like for myself because I am a lifelong bilingual, right? I'm still sort of navigating that, um, but I really have a strong connection to my first language, which is Spanish, because it's like the one thing that connects me to like my childhood memories, mm -hmm. uh, my family, my ancestors. And I know that can be very complex because um, yes, uh, Spanish is a colonized language, but it's the only language that I really know. Right. And that's what I identify with. And I would never want to be responsible for, let's say, for lack of a better word, forcing a student to abandon their first language um, for the sake of learning English. And so that's why I say the goal should be for the child to be bilingual, bicultural, and ultimately to be academically successful. I think that would be the goal of a good bilingual program. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. It, that is interesting. In, even in our early exit model, um, our district decided that they would keep social studies in the native, in, in Spanish, mm -hmm. all the way up through fifth grade. And that was because social studies, you do tend, even though the standards in the upper grades are more about um, history and they're not so personal, you know, when the lower mm -hmm. grades, they tend to be more personal. Um, uh -huh. and community and home and things like that. They wanted to maintain that that language at least through social studies. And so they opted to have that all the way up through fifth grade in the native language, which I thought was interesting. Um, uh -huh. an, an attempt, right? <laughs> Sometimes right, it doesn't exactly. pan out the way we want, but we attempted something and that was at least, um, I think, good intentions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So could you share, share some common misconceptions about bilingual education, maybe things you've heard or things you've seen? Well, there's so many, but for the sake of time, I'm going to focus on just one big one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that I've heard, and I've heard this one, like my entire career, I've heard it in the classroom. I've heard it even outside of teaching. Like I've heard it from my friends and everybody, but 
I think for whatever reason, there are so many people out there that think that enrolling students in a bilingual program will confuse them. Yes, I, don't know I why knew you were going to say it. Thing. It's like they're always thinking that it's going to confuse them. Like, mm-hmm. like, you know, they can't do it in two languages. I'm yes. like, and, you know, and so that's such a really uh, common misconception about bilingual education. But studies continue to show that students are capable of transferring a skill from one language to another very mm-hmm. easily. And it's just, I don't, I feel like it just gives them more opportunities to be successful not just in school, but like even later on in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I knew that's I don't like that one. <laughs> no, that one is yeah. very misleading. And I feel like I've heard that my whole life too. Actually, my, my father is bilingual. Um, he spoke Spanish. Spanish was his first language and he didn't learn English until he was in school. And mm-hmm. I, he actually was retained in second grade because they told him the first year was for him to learn English and the second year was for him to learn second grade. Um, oh, wow. This was a while back, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm, mm-hmm. I'm actually would be surprised if things like that aren't still happening in some places. Honestly. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, you know, he was bilingual, um, but it, he, his English was so fluent and he became very comfortable in English. He never really spoke to us in Spanish. And my mother used to ask him all the time, talk to the kids in Spanish. Cause she's not bilingual. Mm-hmm. If they speak mm-hmm. to the kids in Spanish, you're the only way they're going to get it. And he wouldn't do it because he thought it was going to confuse us. And mm-hmm. I have heard that. And also he probably just didn't do it, you know, <laughs> but, but right. on top of that, mm-hmm. that was his reasoning. Um, mm-hmm. I've heard that from so many people who are doubtful and they'll say, well, my friend told me it will confuse them. And I don't know if that's, you know, I don't want to con- like, is it going to mean that they're not going to start speaking on time? Or are they going to miss yeah, some milestones? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whenever they're working with preschoolers or kids, you know, toddlers and, they're worried mm-hmm. about that, you know? So I usually try to direct them to the research and look up households that are speaking in both languages and what those, that looks like, how do they do it? Some do like, yeah. you know, one day we do this one day, we do that one parent does this one parent does that. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's daunting and it's just, it dissuades a lot of people, I think from, you know, gr- providing their kids with that opportunity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think I, I agree, but I, I know I have some friends too, that are just they're, you know, like they're scared to introduce mm-hmm. Spanish to their, you know, like, you know, to their children. And I'm like, I'm thinking, no, but it's actually really beneficial for them. But mm-hmm. I mean, I understand the hesitation because I know a lot of people and I have some friends that don't speak Spanish, you know, because their parents made it, made it, made a choice early on. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to teach them Spanish. And it's because either it was confusing or because they just didn't want them to get discriminated against. Mm-hmm. And so I, I've heard that basically from my friends, like, you know, they always tell me the same thing. I wish I learned, like, I wish I knew Spanish, but, you know, I, mm-hmm. I can't speak it because my mom, you know, never taught it to me. Um, I mean, I was lucky because my mom was very big on, like, you're going to learn Spanish at home and we're going to speak it at home all the time. But mm-hmm. I was enrolled in an English, like, English-only classes, you know, when mm-hmm. I went to school. So that's how I learned English, not from home, but from school. And mm-hmm. Spanish was always, always at home. Mm-hmm. That's my, my I wasn't confused. Yeah, and right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it worked out, right? Our brains yeah. are amazing. We can do amazing stuff yeah. with our brains and language. Like you're saying, I mean, it's actually when your brain can, can function in two different languages. Um, there are so many benefits to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, my husband is also bilingual and his first language was Spanish and he learned English at school as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, he, he's, he's fluent. He's, but you know, it's sad because the school program of course was not focused on maintaining the Spanish and teaching him how to read Mm -hmm. and write in Spanish at all. He really, I mean, he can read and write in Spanish um, to a degree, Mm -hmm. but he's not comfortable. Mm -hmm. It's it's more of a challenge. He really has to think, you know, Mm -hmm. and, um, but he does speak Spanish. His vocabulary isn't 
excellent. <laughs> but like you were saying before, <laughs> we, we had a little chat about that before we started recording about, you know, what is the marker for being bilingual? At what point do you yeah. say you are, you are not? Um, mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, he, he's, he is bilingual, but um, he had that same experience where he learned English at school and, and that, that worked out. <laughs> it works out. Yeah. It worked out. Yeah. <laughs> so this kind of leads into the next thing that I'm curious about, which is how does mindset affect the way that we approach bilingual teaching and learning? Because I really want coaches to like kind of cultivate and administrators as well, like to cultivate yeah. this mindset that they need to create a positive learning environment for our bilingual students. Yeah. So I do think that we have to have buy-in, like we have to believe in the power of bilingual education for it to be successful. Because if we don't, if we don't trust um, the process, then of course we're going to revert back to whatever language we feel more, like more comfortable with, right? Mm -hmm. So I've met so many teachers that are more comfortable with Spanish. So of course the majority of the day they'll be speaking in Spanish. And then I've met some that are more comfortable with English. And so they're leaning towards English the entire day. So mm -hmm. we kind of have to be like aware of our own language ideologies, right? And then not let that affect really ultimately what's best for our students. Mm -hmm. So I remember specifically being in um, like second grade and I was, you know, like in the bilingual program. And I remember my administrator said, you don't have that many students exiting into um, a non-bilingual third grade classroom for next year. Uh -huh. and, and it was a very difficult conversation to have because I didn't want to push my students out of the bilingual program because I didn't feel like they were ready just yet. Mm -hmm. Now I trust my students and I believed in them, but I didn't want them to just kind of like throw them in there and then hope for the best, right? right? I wanted them to really cultivate that Spanish, really feel comfortable. And maybe in fourth grade, they could exit the program. Mm -hmm. And so I had to really sit there and like fight for a little bit, like say, no, I'm, I'm the teacher. I, you know, I spend time with them. I know what they need, you know? And so um, I did it for them, right? Because I wanted to advocate for my students. And I think at the end of the day, that's what we have to do as teachers. We have to kind of like um, support the student and then admin has to support us. And of course, in the end I won, you know, but, but mm -hmm. I was happy that they listened to me. Like, you know, I was like, I can, I sort of like convinced them like, I think this is like the natural process because, or maybe that's not the, the best um, wording to use, but I feel like this is like what, what's going to come naturally for them because I want them to kind of take it easy for one more year. And then maybe the following year, they'll be ready for English, like all English the entire day. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think as administrators and coaches, we kind of have to trust our teachers, but our teachers also have to trust the process of the bilingual program. Not, not um, of course, they're not ideal programs, but if we are doing ultimately what's best for the student, then we have to trust that process, mm -hmm. you know? And, and I think the only way that we can really foster a positive learning environment for our, you know, uh, like our students is simply by being cognizant of our thoughts and our actions. Like how do we, like when we think about our students, like like, how do we view them? Like, do we compare them to the students who are not in bilingual classrooms? Because it's so, we should not be doing that, right? We should really be comparing um, a student to himself or herself, right? Not comparing apples with oranges, but rather, I always say like measure growth by the individual person. Like, what did Raul score then? And what is Raul scoring now? Not Raul and then this student or Raul and then that student over there. So 
I really think that if we approach it to where we're, um, I guess, acknowledging the value that they bring, then I, then I think the program can be successful, even if the program is flawed. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, because that's true, because so many of us are working with programs that maybe don't reflect the ideals that we have, but we can yeah. still make good choices within that framework, hopefully, to try to honor the goals that we have for kids. Yes, because I, I think, and I think that's like the real secret, because we're never going to find that perfect program, right? Mm-hmm. Every program, even the best program out there right now has flaws. Mm-hmm. So we kind of have to find a way to function within the program. But at the end of the day, just justify your actions by your student's success. That's mm-hmm. what I always say. And so I think if admin supports that, you know, and coaches support you in that, then I think it'll work out mm-hmm. like for the best. So what are some of the best practices that you think would make the best possible <laughs> bilingual <laughs> program? Like if you were building your own, um, if, you, if they said, they said, here's a school, you create the bilingual model. What, what are those best practices that you would include there? Oh man, <laughs> there's so many. I mean, I think when I first started like thinking about this question, the first thing that like that popped into my head was ensuring that we're providing our students with like visual aids right? That we're, you know, providing them with pictures, you know, graphics, charts, things like that, because that goes a long way um, for our students. Um, I also think that the teachers really need to explicitly model things for their students, which we often talk about, but I really want to see it more in the classroom because modeling is beneficial, of course, in any classroom, right? Mm -hmm. But specifically in a bilingual classroom, I feel like it's super important for us to really model for our students what the expectation is because I think because they need like that visual and the modeling right Uh, for it to work but also I think we need to provide them with opportunities to socialize with each other and not make it feel like we're grading them when they're doing it Mm -hmm. right so in Texas you know we focus a lot on like listening speaking writing, right, reading, all of that. Mm -hmm. And so I think the speaking and the listening part sometimes is um, a struggle for our students because we don't give them enough time to practice. So I think if we were to do like five minutes a day where maybe it's like a game where they have to like listen and speak, I think that that could really go a long way for our kiddos. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think those are um, excellent points. And they're just really quality teaching. Like that's just what we, yeah. that's, that's what we need to keep in mind as we are planning lessons to meet the needs of kids who are at a, a wide range of developmental levels in each language. Um, mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot to juggle in your head as a teacher when you are trying to do that, um, yeah. to make sure that you have the scaffolding for the kids who mm-hmm. need it and that you are removing some of that scaffolding for the kids who don't so that they can start to um, independently produce these ideas. And um, it's a real challenge. I, you know, another challenge that I had um, in working with our dual language classrooms was in finding enough literature or quality mm-hmm. literature in Spanish and in Spanish that they thought was quality Spanish. <laughs> Um, and so that was, I feel like as a best practice, I would want to ensure that kids have access to really quality literature in both languages at a variety of levels, because in each classroom, Mm -hmm. kids are at a variety of levels in those languages. Right. Exactly. Exactly. What are some other challenges that bilingual teachers have that are unique that if you haven't been a teacher in a bilingual classroom, Mm -hmm. you might not realize that. Yes. Uh, so this question, uh, when I saw that question, I was like, oh, yes, I'm going to talk about this. <laughs> I'm going to talk about this a lot. Um, but 
I think the main thing is that we really are expected to do so much paperwork, right? We have to fill out all of these forms, you know, we have to do all of these things, um, maybe additional testing even. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know how other like states or districts, you know, work, but like for us, we have to take two grades, a Spanish grade and an English grade, which means our students have to take twice as many assessments, which means that we have to do twice as much grading. Mm-hmm. And so it just feels con- like we're constantly having to do like double the work, but we're not getting extra time. It's just like, right. we have to do it just like everyone else, you know? And so that is, I think one of the biggest challenges for us is that we don't have enough time to do all of that paperwork, you know, all of that extra stuff that we have to do. And so I would say that's like the biggest challenge. I think that's definitely unique because if you haven't been a bilingual teacher, um, ever, then you don't understand it until you actually have to do it. Mm-hmm. And it just gets really over, I think it just gets really overwhelming. I know there are some states and districts that um, do pay teachers like a yearly stipend, you know, but I would say like overall, we're underpaid. Whether mm-hmm. you're a bilingual teacher, whether you're an ESL teacher, whether you're not, you know, either of those two, right. we are we are overpaid across the board. And so I really feel, I really hope that we're, that we can address that like sooner than later, you know? Yes. Our teachers in, in the district that I work for here, were given a, a stipend, um, by the mm-hmm. teachers were, but it doesn't really, <laughs> it doesn't cover the extra stuff, you know, honestly, just even in creating materials, um, yeah. sometimes you're like, okay, I, it used to kill me. Cause I knew sometimes I would be turning around a resource that was purchased. And our, our central office was pretty good at being aware of the needs of bilingual teachers, but sometimes mm-hmm. certain things just didn't exist. And they, it was, I was like, how do we, what are we going to do? Because I would be presenting on something new that we were asked to do. And they'd say, is it available in Spanish? That was, I always, I was like, oh, here comes, here comes, (laughs) here comes. And I had to say it is not, and this is what they've recommended that we do or whatever the alternative was. Um, But that alone, whenever you are a monolingual teacher in English and you've mm-hmm. been, you've been handed something and they yes. say you can use this resource. And then they look at the bilingual teacher sitting next to you and say, mm-hmm. we don't have one for you. That's really yeah. terrible. Right. Exactly. Or they say we have it in English, but you can translate it. Yeah. I've heard that my entire career too. And right. I'm like, Oh, great. Thank you. Now I have work. Yeah. Yeah. Like now I have to go home and translate all this tonight. <laughs> right. And it's like, well, I will do it because my kids need yeah. it, but right. really someone else should be doing this. Like someone, right. if that's the case and it's going to be hundreds of teachers using this resource, why wouldn't we have someone at a higher level mm-hmm. translate it once or someone get paid over the summer to translate it once and then send it out to everyone who needs it? Because then you're providing the tools that the teachers actually need. Right. Exactly. That's a huge, huge, the resources were a huge issue um, for bilingual teachers. And so I spent a lot of time on, (laughs) in lots of places, trying to find resources um, and even just the literature. You know, one year I was working on um, mentor text baskets. And Mm -hmm. I actually have a post about that on the blog because we, we, chose a mentor author for each grade level. But I, in order for, to have our classrooms aligned, I had to choose an author that had a collection of books out in Spanish as well. So Mm -hmm. it really limited our choices. And we, you know, we chose great authors and we found the resources, but I had to buy a lot of them like used because they were out of print Mm -hmm. in Spanish. Um, Mm -hmm. I bought a bunch of stuff on like eBay and then I got (laughs) reimbursed because that's the only place I could find them. Um, And that's something that we ask bilingual teachers to do all the time. 
It's just mm-hmm. figure it out, figure it out. We don't have it for you. Just so figure it out. And whenever you're a coach, if you're not acknowledging that reality, then you're not yeah. really, you know, being supportive of, of what they're actually working through. And it's hard for them to take you seriously if you're pretending like everything's fine. Yes. I a hundred percent agree with you on that. And I actually talked more about that um, in your next question. Because oh, good. Was, oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Cause I wanted to mention that. Cause I was like, yes, I think um, I definitely like to be the kind of coach that I haven't forgotten what it's like to be in a bilingual classroom and mm-hmm. then not be given anything in Spanish, right. you know, for my students. And so I wanted to be that coach that advocates for my teachers and says, mm-hmm. okay, if we're going to order this in Spanish, or, I'm sorry, in English, then we also need to order it in Spanish. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of coach that I always like strive to be um, when I met with my admin team. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's being an advocate is huge. And that then, yeah, you're right. The next question I was going to ask was how can instructional coaches be supportive of bilingual teachers in a way that meets these unique needs? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, advocating is tremendous right. because sometimes people who are farther away, the farther away we get from the classroom, the easier it is either to forget or to not acknowledge the realities. And, and and yeah, if we're right there in between, we're in between the admin and the teachers, then we can, we can take those concerns and move them up the food chain. (laughs) Right. And I, and I, I vividly remember just like basically on my own, like going out and researching and looking for like, you know, Spanish materials and then just emailing my principal directly and saying, here's the link. Can you order me 10 sets of these? And she would always say, of course, of course I will, of course I will. And I realized then that it wasn't that they didn't care or value my teachers it was that they didn't know what to order Uh like because they've never taught bilingual before so they they were like your guess is as good as mine because I don't know like which publisher is good and which publisher is not and so I was just like okay can you order these can you order these or whatever you know and and then I would ask like my fellow coaches you know and say like hey what did you get from your school whatever and so they would tell me and I was okay so then we're going to order that too yes and so that's kind of how I would figure out what worked and what, you know, like didn't work for my teachers. And so um, I think that's the main thing is like really advocating for resources because we just don't have enough. And it's, I don't know if it's because publishers don't prioritize uh, Spanish, I don't know, but we just didn't have a lot. And so I constantly had to remind people like, please order this in Spanish as well. Please order this in Spanish. Mm -hmm. And so that was always like sort of my role as a coach is to like to feel or to at least help because I'm sure I didn't fill it completely, but at least help to fill that void for my teachers. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, and I, I also, yeah, go sorry. ahead. No, no, go ahead. Um, and, okay. And then I also feel like with that also comes um, advocating for your teachers to ensure that they get uh, adequate PD, you know, mm-hmm. like they need to have professional development that's specific to their needs and to their students, because there are hundreds, if not thousands of PDs out there, but a lot of them don't really apply to our specific needs. So I constantly had to look for like, okay, what will be beneficial for a bilingual teacher who services bilingual students? Because that's what they need to go to. So I would say like the main things is like help them get resources and then help them get adequate PD training. Because sometimes we just throw them into the classroom and say, good luck. And that's just, that can't, you know, we can't keep doing that to our teachers. We have to really um, support them. That is a really good point. Um, yeah, and there's, like you said, there's not as much out there for dual language classrooms um, mm-hmm. or bilingual classrooms. Some mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of anyone that we've had at any point that was really excellent, but I feel like a lot of what we did to support the teachers was I would take whatever we were getting and then I would accommodate it for them. 
or mm -hmm. make adjustments to it. So it actually reflected the work that they were going to do. Um, and sometimes that was a lot of extra time, uh, you know, on my part, but I, why you can't have someone sit through a workshop and it, it doesn't support them. It's not valuable for them. So exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We got to meet their needs. Yeah. So what can a coach do? Like if they find themselves like in the position that I was in, they, they're not really bilingual, mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. they are supporting bilingual classrooms. See, I think it's very doable. You know, I, I've seen it with my own eyes and I've seen it be successful because I have a lot of, you know, um, friends who are coaches in other mm -hmm. schools in my district and some of them are bilingual and some of them are not. Um, and all of them serve as bilingual teachers and they can still come into the classroom. They can still observe. They can still give you feedback. They can still model a lesson in, in English, right? Like if you teach second grade, they can still come in and model like a read aloud in English. Um, they can still advocate for you. Like, and they can really just ask teachers, like, what do you need for me? Or what can I do for you? Um, and sometimes they'll tell you, right? I need this, this, and this. Can you, you know, can you help order me this? Can you help, uh, like, you know, getting me some books, whatever. And they'll tell you. And sometimes they won't tell you because they're shy or they don't really know what they need help with. Mm -hmm. And so you might have to go in and observe and then you kind of like work together to come up with some goals. But I, I definitely think that it is doable and it can be successful. But you also really have to work on like building that trust with that teacher, like building a relationship with them. So that they feel like you're on their side and you're going to advocate and help them. Yeah, I agree um, with that completely. Be you have to be ready to listen and, and, and really understand mm -hmm. what it is that people need. Um, be very open to feedback and very open to suggestions mm -hmm. and requests. And then, you know, one thing that I, that was really helpful to me is just go spend a lot of time in bilingual classrooms yes. and just watch and observe. And mm -hmm. it's, a, I feel like my academic Spanish, it's far better than my husband's and my, like my academic mm -hmm. vocabulary, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah. the structures are not so great, but, <laughs> but I mean, I learned so much just being yes. in those classrooms and because they do a beautiful job. So many times elementary teachers are really good at giving you comprehensible input, no matter what the language is, because that's what right. they do. They teach children. Right. So they provide mm -hmm. the visuals, they provide the cognates, they provide all the stuff um, that you need to learn. And so mm -hmm. I learned so much about Spanish just by sitting in a third or fourth or, you know, second grade classroom and observing and just kind of putting it all together. And, you know, People appreciate when you try. And if you try, exactly. you can value that. And if you don't try, they also see that. <laughs> I agree because I, and I've heard it. Yeah. And I've heard, you know, every story you can think of, and I've heard every complaint <laughs> and every praise as well, mm -hmm. because, you know, sometimes you'll feel like some teachers are like, oh, you know, like you're wonderful because you're really supportive. And then some teachers will say, oh, you know, my coach, um, she just wants to become a, you know, a principal one day. So she's just like flying through the yeah, uh, through the coach stone. position. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so and it's noticeable, you know, when you know when they're like that. But for me, like I'm I I said it before and I'll say it again, I'm a lifelong coach. Like I don't have any interest of in ever becoming an AP or a principal. Like that's not anywhere near my wheelhouse. Like I'm totally like, you know, comfortable being a coach and staying a coach because I truly enjoy it, you know. And so, but we do want them to feel like we, we want them to feel like they can trust us. Like what, like what they say to us is confidential. We won't go and like tell admin, you know, or get them in trouble in any way. And we do want them to feel like we're on their side. 
and I think you can do that whether you're a bilingual coach or a non-bilingual coach. It's not going to be easy because I know I know a lot of bilingual teachers would much rather prefer a bilingual coach, but it's not impossible. No. Absolutely true. Um, yeah, that's of course they would rather someone who could step in and model for them in in that mm -hmm. language, right? Mm -hmm. um, but um, but yeah, we we can certainly be the support that they need at least by being really creative. One thing we used mm -hmm. to do a lot with whenever I couldn't model for somebody because the language was in Spanish, I would um, I would I would have that teacher observe another teacher or I yes. would have another person go into model, one of our other support mm -hmm. staff who was bilingual. And mm -hmm. that was, I mean, we, you just use your people, yeah. <laughs> you use your expertise wherever it is. Mm -hmm. And um, and you still, you get them the support that they need, even if it's not you who can give it. Right, exactly. That's an that's a excellent point. And sometimes it's actually more of an impact when you see it, when, when they see a peer doing it. You know, Absolutely. when it's like, oh, you can do it in your classroom. I can do it in my classroom too. I mean, I think that's a very, um, a powerful thing for yes to and teachers love watching each other teach and they hardly ever get to do it so it's right. i mean it's actually fun you know yeah exactly <laughs> some of my best learning has come from just you know going on my conference period to visit somebody else's classroom and just being like oh this mm -hmm. is what it looks like in here this is neat um yeah. i also think uh, you, and you mentioned about administration and stepping stones and people like like you're saying just moving through that mm -hmm. coach position and that does happen and i have seen that happen and it is not mm -hmm. pretty um, mm -hmm. I do think though that you can, and I, and I also am not interested in, co in, in administrator work at all. It just does not, it looks like a horrible job. <laughs> I know it's, it looks so stressful <laughs> and being a coach is stressful too, but it's yes, like stressful yes. in different ways. You're stressed about things that aren't interesting anymore <laughs> in my opinion. Exactly. Yeah. Like for me, it's not interesting to be stressed about like, I think the overall like accountability of how your students perform on a test, like I'm not interested in like being responsible for my entire school's performance because I can't control my entire school, you know? Yeah, it is true. And as a coach, I was somewhat held accountable for that as well, which yeah. is not- Oh yeah, we are. Yeah, <laughs> but in like Either. a slightly different way than admin. So. Yeah, yeah. Either effective or not effective. Like yes. on the scores. I, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, not fun. But I do think that there are people that are using the coaching position as a way, like, they're, they're there and they do want to be administrators, but they know that mm -hmm. there's value that they're adding to their experience and they're still mm -hmm. growing their schools and supporting their schools. And then they're going to move right. into administration at some point. And I think that's right. great. Um, yeah. You can tell who's, who wants the best for their school and who's just paying their dues. <laughs> yes, you can, you can definitely tell. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I think it's, oh, I'm sorry. No. And I think it is like, you can, like, you can be successful at being a coach, even if that's like your stepping stone to the next thing. Mm -hmm. um, absolutely. So I don't want to say like every coach is like that. Cause not every coach is like that, but there are some that are like that. And you're thinking, okay, you're, you're doing it. Cause you're trying to pay your dues, but, mm -hmm. but yeah, anyways. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I just, I figured that's what you, I knew that was your intention. Yeah. So I wanted to, yeah. to clarify that to anybody. Um, yeah. So if coaches only walk away with one idea from this episode, what would you think it should be? What's so important that they need to remember? Okay. So uh, I think I would say this as a coach, right? Myself. So I, I'm a firm believer in helping teachers become better teachers, right? Because I think in the end, that is what benefits our students the most. Um, and that doesn't always look the same every single day because I've helped my teachers with conducting PDs, with modeling, anything from read aloud, full group lessons, small group, you, you know, you name it, mm -hmm. um, tutoring even, um, sometimes even helping them with their running record mm -hmm. and even running copies for them. So I would say my best advice 
that I can give a coach that's listening is to please stay flexible because even though, yes, our ultimate goal is to help grow the teacher, you, we will also be expected to put out fires when necessary. That's so true. I would say that would, that would be like the main message here. It's just a reality. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. So how can people find you online if they want to learn more or if they want to check out your resources? Where, th- where should they look? Okay, so you can find me on Instagram um, at ByLiteracyNow. I spend most of my time on there. Um, occasionally I'll share a couple of things, you know, on there. Um, I, d- I don't really share that much lately, but, but that's where you can find me. Um, you can also visit my website by literacynow.com and you can check out my TPT store. Perfect. Thank you so much, Tiana, for being here today. Um, I really appreciate this conversation. Yes, it was fun. Thank you for inviting me. All right. So there you go. Um, bilingual education is a huge issue that we all should kind of be aware of and understanding of, but it takes time to develop our understanding of this. So I'm really glad that Diana came on today to help us have this dialogue and maybe get started thinking about what bilingual education could look like or should look like where you are. Uh, my next episode is episode 78, and we're talking about setting up a model classroom. This is going to be really good because if you have struggled with um, getting to enough teachers, modeling for enough teachers, providing enough support to different teachers, model classrooms can be the way to make sure that you are actually providing support to teachers, even without you being the boss of everything all the time. (laughs) And it's also a really good way to build leadership on your campus, just like Deanna and I were just talking about, teachers who observe other teachers um, actually in their classrooms are really going to walk away with some amazing stuff. So join me next week to talk about setting up a model classroom. And until then, happy coaching. Thank you for listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast. Want more coaching ideas? Check me out at buzzingwithmissb.com and on Instagram at buzzingwithmissb. If you love the show, share it with a coach who would love it too, or leave me a review on iTunes. It's free and it helps others find this show. Happy coaching. Happy coaching.